Well, we need sugar to get glucose directly to our brain. And what prevents glucose from getting to the brain is insulin resistance from all the fat that's in our bloodstream at the same time. So even though we've eaten the sugar, we want more because our brain cells aren't receiving most of it. Welcome to the Misdiagnosed Podcast, where we uncover the truth about all things mental health, from what's really causing mental illness symptoms to why the industry of psychiatry and big pharma don't seem all that interested in helping people heal. This show will get your hands dirty so you can know the truth and live free. I'm your host, Caitlin Pyle, and I've healed from multiple mental illness symptoms, including bipolar disorder, ADHD, OCD, clinical depression, extreme anxiety, and PTSD. Psychiatrists almost ruined my life, but I live to tell about it, and I'm sharing it all here on this show. Join us as we explore how to spot the lies the mental health industry tries to sell us. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Misdiagnosed Podcast. It's been a hot minute. It is the middle of the Florida summer. I'm recording this on Thursday, July 20th, so you're probably listening to it a few weeks after that. Just been working on getting the house ready for rental. My van is almost done. In fact, I should be able to fly up there in about a week, week and a half to get it. And just super excited. I've been spending a lot of time planning that and resting a lot. And just haven't been all that inclined to sit and record and edit a podcast. So, but there's good news because I have hired an editor and that means that all I have to do is sit and record now. And I'm also in the middle of finding some guests to come on the show who have healed mental illness using natural methods as well. And a lot of the things that I talk about on the show specifically the medical medium protocols. I've met some other people who have also healed various mental illness symptoms, just like me, using these protocols. Because I think just judging from what I hear on TikTok, which I've been a little bit more active on than this podcast, on TikTok, people will say, oh, well, that worked for you, but it doesn't work for everybody. And some people will say, well, that's just a privileged position because not everybody has access to the resources that you do. And That may be true, but there's an issue of people not having the information. Like the issue is education, not resources. When people know that they could eat bananas and frozen blueberries, which are not that expensive at all. Rice, beans, that's gluten-free vegan right there. You know, like you're already halfway, more than halfway to a much healthier diet than, than most people are eating, right? So... If you ever been to Aldi, you know that it's not expensive to eat healthy food and they have a lot more healthy stuff these days. They've improved a lot. So yeah, it's really about education, which ultimately is why I'm here, you know, to share my story and to share other people's stories. And that's why I'm going to be branching off into doing more interviews along with solo episodes. And who knows what's going to happen to the podcast when I'm in the van I might be pivoting the whole show entirely to be more, you know, let's talk about anything like spiritual growth, defecting from Christianity, right? (laughs) At least mainstream Christianity, which is the Christianity I grew up in, you know, and recovering from the trauma and toxic messaging. Yeah. Like if you're depressed, it's because you're not following God and, and all that kind of stuff. Like who knows? There's so many different things that I could be talking about. And I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, so I'm going to pick up with 
we were talking about addiction in the last episode. I want to go ahead and finish that topic because the last part of your addicted brain in the medical medium brain saver book talks about sugar addiction. And a lot of people, I was even on Reddit this morning reading how people had quit alcohol, which we're going to be talking about alcohol in the near future. There's a whole chapter. It's a short chapter, but it's a, I mean, it's not for the faint of heart (laughs) chapter on alcohol in this book with a lot of really important information that I want to summarize and share for the listeners of this podcast. It could really change your life because up until this point, I want to say I had a drink the last time, maybe a month and a half ago, and I'd never feel good after I drink. I can maybe feel what I think of as good while I'm drinking, but then afterwards I always wonder like, why did I drink, you know? So yeah, and what most people call sugar addiction is not actually an addiction technically. It is in a different category from other very addictive substances like nicotine, MSG, and caffeine. And sugar is different from these substances. MSG, nicotine, caffeine, our brains and our bodies don't need those, right? But sugar, also known as glucose, is essential. Our brains and bodies absolutely require it. While processed sugar is not ideal, right? (laughs) There's a difference between, you know, a bag of just crystal little Dixie crystal sugar and the sugar you find in fruit, for example, we don't turn to sugar for adrenaline the same way we turn to other addictive substances for the adrenaline they trigger. And that's the main reason why drugs are so addictive is because they make us feel good. And why we feel good is adrenaline, right? And we haven't done the episode on caffeine yet, but it's coming. I promise. (laughs) I was tempted to skip the last part of this chapter, but it's so important. And we've got a couple other like little mini chapters coming before we get into caffeine and alcohol. To me, it's important that we go in order because there's information in that is important in these chapters that will help the chapters on caffeine and alcohol make the most sense. So as excited as I am to like get into that, (laughs) I think it's wise to make sure we have all the foundational information. So yeah, I think I've mentioned on the show before that the reason why a lot of pharmaceutical drugs seem to feel good and seem to help is because the manufacturers add caffeine. And that gives the illusion that they're helping. And there's a lot of people who are out there, who are, you know, diehard caffeine people that because it makes them feel good, they believe it's good for them. And interestingly enough, ice baths that are all the rage right now, the reason that they feel good is because they cause your body to release adrenaline in the same way caffeine does. So yeah, adrenaline can be really bad for, I mean, it's meant to be good for your body and reserved for, you know, fight or flight circumstances, but it can be corrosive to our systems. Yeah. What we need sugar to get glucose directly to our brain and what prevents glucose from getting to the brain is insulin resistance from all the fat that's in our bloodstream at the same time. So even though we've eaten the sugar, we want more because our brain cells aren't receiving most of it. And that's why it can be really hard to practice moderation around processed sugar and refined carbs like white bread, because it just is not getting into our cells. It can't. There's too much fat. And I've said before that high protein diets are also high fat diets. And that's like all the rage right now is you need tons and tons of protein. And like for diabetics, for example, like eat tons of protein. 
and keep your sugars down. Like don't eat carbs because they're saying they look in the blood and they see all this sugar still in the blood. But the reason it can't get into the cells is because of all the fat. So if you reduce the fat, then the sugar can get into the cells and you don't have a high blood sugar anymore. So that's another thing I learned from Anthony that blew my mind. If you want to learn more about that, then you're going to want to check out the liver rescue book, which talks more about diabetes and the whole process behind what causes that. Yeah, so what's important to know here is that processed sugar addiction or being fixated on it can perpetuate addiction of any other kind, whether that's in the form of other food addictions or maybe dependency on prescription medications, usually medications for depression, anxiety, ADHD, or bipolar disorder. Now, why is that? We, we often find ourselves with a sugar addiction in part because we're trying to treat ourselves, you know? And it's not in the sense of giving ourselves a treat, but in the sense of treatment, right? We're trying to treat ourselves. We're subconsciously trying to self-medicate because of the lack of glucose and glycogen storage in our brain. We really want to find relief from impulsivity around processed sugar. We can actively address our brain's glucose and glycogen deficit by lowering the fat in our diet. So we'll bring in foods that are rich in bioavailable glucose, like fruit, right? You don't need to be afraid of fruit. Replacing the fat with fruit, supporting our brain with other practices and protocols, many of which you can find in the medical medium books, right? If you don't know, I reference these books heavily for these episodes. I literally have the book open in front of me. I've got gajillions of highlights and I go through it chapter by chapter. So people who are on the go, they don't have time to sit and read a 600 page book. I can help with that. So yeah, and you may have heard in the news that addiction has been linked to our genes, right? We look at long family lines of addiction that is just rampant throughout generations. And that's why it seems to make sense that addiction is in our genes. But even if addiction doesn't follow a linear path through a family, we're still told it's genetic, right? Everything gets blamed on our genes. So much mental illness is blamed on our genes. Right? But there's a difference between something being hereditary and something being actually in your genes. When I think I've said before, like you can't look in your genes and say, ooh, there's bipolar disorder. Like it's not, it's not like that at all. And there's things like epigenetics, right? Things that are out now in mainstream science, it's becoming more mainstream anyway, that, that is proving that there are things that can turn on and off gene responses. So we're not just stuck with what we have, right? Nothing's static in the world of health at all. So if your grandpa had a drinking problem, just as an example, and any other family member happens to develop an addiction as well, you might hear from people like, oh, you just inherited that gene from grandpa. And someone might ask you if it's genetic, well, how come mom doesn't struggle with that? And I do, right? And then we get told, oh, it just skips a generation, right? And all of that's just bullshit. Like, <laughs> it's just bullshit. And it's because we're not aware of the true underlying causes of addiction and it can just make it seem really simple to just be told that it's inherited, right? It's not this simple. You know, I've been addicted to stuff before and it's not genetic. Um, I'm not addicted anymore. There have been people in my family who've been addicted to stuff and I'm, I know it's not based on like a family thing. We're told it's genetic because it's really easy to swallow though, but genes are not the answer when it comes to addiction. The reason that addiction seems to be genetic though is that addiction can indeed show up generation after generation because there's family members that 
have experienced a lot of the same nutritional deficiencies and emotional upheavals because they've had common circumstances, right? Another reason is that they were exposed to the same toxic heavy metals, which we've talked about on the show extensively, and maybe they've been exposed to other type of brain betrayers, as Anthony calls them, due to a lot of the common circumstances shared among families. Maybe they followed the same patterns of early caffeine exposure, or maybe the same toxic heavy metals and contaminants were passed down through their bloodline, right? So there's a difference between something being hereditary and passed down and it being, quote unquote, in your genes. Of course, none of this is common knowledge. And so we're we're often seeing headlines trending about addiction and genes, and it seems to make logical sense, but we can't see the toxic heavy metals and other kind of things that get in our path in each other's brain. We can't see those toxic heavy metals. So the only thing we can see are what the effects of addiction are, the actions of someone struggling with addiction and the reactions of the people in their lives and how these actions may repeat themselves within a family. We can also see physical traits of someone who might be struggling with addiction and how maybe they have the same facial features as an ancestor who struggled with an addiction and we're led to draw conclusions from that. Yeah, so genetics is basically in the same realm as neuroscience. Both genetics and neuroscience seem, right, the keyword there is seem, like such lofty, really high-minded, very well-developed, advanced fields of medicine that their inner workings have to be beyond our comprehension and grasp, and we should just bow down and accept everything that they say, right? Especially if genetics and neuroscience are put together like they are with addiction. Have you heard that genetics and even epigenetics, right? Gene expression are determining our neurochemistry and neurobiology. Basically, it tells us that it's game over for any type of questioning of what's really going on underneath all that addiction that we can struggle with. But yeah, like I said before, blaming addiction on genes is just not a good thing to do. It's it's a great mistake. For one, when you blame a condition like addiction on genes, it sends a message on a subliminal level that it's unfixable, right? Just like we've talked about on the show before where we've been told that mental illness isn't curable. We've been told that it's lifelong. We've been told that the only thing you can do is manage the symptoms and that's just not true. And the same thing is at play here. If you believe your genes are the reason for your addiction, it can feel like that much bigger of a fight to make yourself free of it. It can even feel like there's no sense in trying because in the back of your mind, it may feel like an unwinnable fight. If we follow the theory that genes are responsible for addiction, then what does that theory have to say about how we fix our genes and get rid of the addiction problem, right? basically says that we don't, we don't fix our addiction problem. We just have to deal with it, right? It's one of the greatest shortcomings of blaming addiction on genes. Your genes always win, and that's just not true. So there's another limitation of blaming addiction on genetics, and that is that it can be an excuse to keep an addiction, to just give in to it. So you might say, I'm going to keep smoking, or I'm going to keep drinking because the doctor says it's in my genes right? (laughs) It's basically why people are like, oh, well, I'm just bipolar. I'm just ADHD. And they attach themselves to the identity of it. Not to mention that when we blame addiction on genes, what we're also doing is invalidating our emotional injuries, abuse, struggles, and hardships. So we say to ourselves, it's not why I have this addiction problem. You know, we, we dismiss it, even though it may have played a very big role. 
when we're told it's all in our genes, it can make us doubt ourselves and doubt the validity of the trauma we may have come up against and how that could have been a very big player in us becoming addicted to something. So when we hear terms like genetic switches, it can sound like definitive science, right? Science is always making up stuff, especially medical science. They're always making up stuff to make it sound believable and credible because they don't want to be discredited because it's a huge industry, right? Turning genes on and off is actually still a theory and there's no proven science to date that shows any of this happening or causing any kinds of issues. It's not like scientists have some window into a person's genes where they can watch the genes being switched on and cause an addiction. It's just not possible. There's no proof of this yet. Science hasn't even proven that there's a possibility for genes to simply be switched into gear or for gene changes to match the circumstances that are occurring. It's an interesting theory, of course, like what if genes could be just activated or turned on, but it's just a theory. When it comes to genes and addiction, no matter what terminology is applied, it's all theory. And we have to be careful about theories that get through the ether with no real substantiation, no legitimate studies behind them. Often what occurs with genetic studies is that once there's a study on a gene, theories evolve that have nothing to do with the study itself. The study gets cited even though it's completely unrelated to the theory that someone else is proposing, other than the mere fact that both have to do with our genes. Billions of dollars go into genetic research and the belief, that's very important to highlight, is that it's a belief that the purpose of the study of genetics is to fix our problems and try to help people with their diseases. It's quite the opposite. Classified medical science is purposely using the studies of genes to find ways to worsen our lives and health conditions so that the industry can profit. They're doing it in mental health. It's not just in mental health either. It's all over. Even if the individuals studying genes within the publicly known medical industry have the purest intentions, their work is being used against them. Genetic research isn't about helping others or unlocking our genes or bettering people's lives. And the medical industry, the classified medical industry anyway, hasn't accomplished it yet, but genetic research is ultimately about a thirst to use genes to find ways to control us. So remember, we gotta keep our wits about us when you hear assumptions and theories that even seem scientific, like addiction is all in your genes, because if addiction is blamed on genes, then the very fiber of someone's being can be blamed as the source of the problem, and the publicly known medical industry doesn't have to look further for answers and risk exposing what the classified medical industry doesn't wish to expose. So what's behind our addictive nature anyway? It's not because we're flawed or just wired wrong, right? Which is what we're told often when we go to a psychiatrist, right? We're just wired wrong. And <laughs> they have no proof of that, but we believe it, right? We, so many of us believed it. Not all addictions are unhealthy, right? Living life to its fullest potential. Maybe you have dreams and aspirations and visions of what you're searching for in life. You have love and joy and happiness. This all can be addictive too. Even the simplicities of being alive, watching the sunrise, watching the sunset, taking walks, all those things can be addicted. We can really become addicted to very healthy practices. Positive addictions, like other addictions, come down to adrenaline. Now this is unknown to medical research and science, but our adrenal glands produce 56 different blends of adrenaline in response to different circumstances and emotion. And more than half of those blends are for everyday situations, including brisk walks, talking with strangers, taking a bath, swimming, dreaming. 
The release of these adrenaline blends can provide pleasant sensations that we want to feel again, which is how a beneficial addiction to a good night's sleep, a healthy hobby, or being in the outdoors can take shape. These everyday adrenaline blends are quite a bit milder than the harsh kinds that are used for crisis, plus they're triggered at gentler levels. Milder adrenaline blends at gentler levels mean that you have a more nurturing and sustainable experience for the brain and the body. We need adrenaline for our healthy addictions and healthy practices. So if we use our adrenaline and burn out our adrenaline reserves with unhealthy practices like drugs and even coffee, we're not going to get the best out of the healthy addictions and practices. We're not going to have the best sensations, experiences, feelings, or even have the best energy for them if we're trapped in unhealthy practices that are requiring adrenaline for the wrong reasons. And chances are that someone's unhealthy addictions are outweighing and diminishing the benefits of the healthy addictions that they might have. It's also possible to become addicted to unhealthy practices that are said to be healthy practices, right? Like the ice baths and coffee enemas and coffee itself, right? We can be fooled by those unhealthy practices because of their addictive nature and the feelings we get just from the adrenaline highs. Just because many addictions are life-supportive, life-friendly, life-healthy, and life-lengthening doesn't mean everything we hear is healthy actually is, though. Everything in moderation is a very popular term that we use often as permission to just try anything, right? And to understand why moderation is misled and to understand the addictive nature of the practices that make stopping at moderation unrealistic for so many of us we're actually going to do an episode on moderation later on. So stay tuned. There's a whole section in Anthony's book called Brainwashed, where we're going to actually dive into examples, right? (laughs) So microdosing is one of them, like with psychedelics, which I have experience with. Alcohol and caffeine are the three prime examples of addictive substances that we're going to cover and how they interact with the brain, even in those microdoses. So yeah, whether we find ourselves in an addictive cycle with caffeine, drugs, alcohol, nicotine, MSG, sex, pills, gambling, shopping, our cell phones, TV, might be staying up all night, scented candles and fragrances, unproductive foods, right? Gluten, I'm looking at you, hoarding, organizing, work, exercise, or any other substance or activity that can be addicting, it's not a fault with who we are as humans, okay? If we've never been a person who could just have one drink or smoke or just one cigarette or take just the prescribed dose of those opioids, it's not because we're weak. We're actually really strong to have gotten as far as we've gotten, right? And we're strong to have lived so long with a brain that is in need of support. (laughs) Yeah. And I tell myself that when I have days where I'm like still kind of feeling the effects, right? Because they say it takes three to five years to recover from burnout. And they say it takes three years or two years, sorry, to recover from alcohol abuse. And I think I've mentioned on the show before, but like for a 10 month period between 2021, actually it was all in 2021, most of 2021. Well, we started sometime in February of 2021. I was drinking a shit ton of whiskey. (laughs) And I think that that really messed with some systems along with other stuff that was messing with my brain. Like I was just totally imbalanced all over the place. And it takes between, I think they were saying two years after alcohol abuse. And even though it wasn't for that long of a period, like it was still really heavy. 
at some points I was drinking, I want to say like two cups of whiskey a night. Yeah, I measured it one day. I was just very curious, like, okay, I'm just going to measure how much it was. And it was a lot of whiskey. Like I was just not, and I was so used to drinking that amount that I didn't feel any of it, but I was also taking Xanax in small doses, but it can still have a, even small doses have a pretty significant effect and it can make it harder to feel the effects of alcohol, which can lead you to drink more. And that's what can be dangerous with it. That you can, you will not feel the effects of the alcohol and it can lead to alcohol poisoning. It can be really bad. So yeah, so that about wraps up the addicted brain. We're going to move right along and we're going to end this episode here, but we're going to go into the acid brain as well. And then we'll have finished part one of the Brain Saver book in which we're laying the foundation for the part two of the book, which is about all the things that we've been brainwashed about, um, like the moderation. We'll talk about moderation. We're going to talk about microdosing. We're going to talk about alcohol and we're going to talk about caffeine and you're going to want to brace yourself for that. Um, <laughs> we got one more chapter in section one. It's called your acid brain. And that's really interesting. We're going to talk more about like what the role of fat is. Most people don't know that fats are acids and that it can cause your brain and your body to become acidic. And that is an environment that can allow pathogens to grow. And it's not a good place to be when you have too much fat. So not that all fats are bad and that like no amount is good or anything like that, but the marketing right now for these high fat diets is a deception. A lot of people are ruining their livers and the longer you eat high fat, high protein diets, the more work your liver has to go through and eventually your liver becomes stagnant and sluggish. So we're going to touch on that a little bit in the next episode. We'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. This has been Misdiagnosed. I'm your host, Kaylin Pyle. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Misdiagnosed podcast. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you know someone else out there who'd benefit from what we share on this show, please don't hesitate to share this episode with them.